0: Bible is the Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, and thank you for allowing me to be here. The accommodations are wonderful. It's always a, a privilege and an honor to come and preach here, and the church that Pastor Smith's pastors is a good friend and a, and a wise counselor, and I'm thankful to be here. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, specifically at verses 25 through 30. We're going to be looking at the greatest invitation given, and that is an invitation given by the Lord Jesus Christ unto sinners. Let's go ahead and stand out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it together Matthew 11 and verse number 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of allowing us to read your precious word and to study it this morning. We pray that you would enlighten our mind that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, I pray for those that know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would be encouraged this morning to love the Lord Jesus Christ more, to be more faithful to him, more devoted to him. And Father, I pray for those who are not converted, those who have not turned from their sin and repentance unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Pray that you would bless your word to the saving of their soul even this morning. We pray that you would bless your truth and glorify thyself, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ leave the glory of heaven with all of the angels up there adoring him and worshiping him? The awesome splendor of heaven to come. To this earth, becoming a man in the incarnation? Why did he limit his prerogatives as God and take the form of a servant, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, and live as a simple carpenter? Why did he come to this earth? Well, the Bible answers these questions quite simply in many, in many places. The Apostle Paul put it this way in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus is come into the world to save sinners, that Christ has come to save sinners from their sins and the wrath that they deserve for breaking God's holy law. In fact, throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see that this was his main purpose. Even his miracles were to point men and women to himself as the one who gives salvation to sinners. In Luke 19, it's a familiar story of our Lord dealing with Zacchaeus, that chief publican, and that wicked little man as he climbed that sycamore tree, and our Lord came on his way to, through Jericho and called him down by name, went to his home, this man who had been a thief and a very wicked and vile man, And after he came out of that home, after that meeting with Jesus Christ, he began to give away all the goods that he had, willing to restore up to fourfold that which he took by deception. And Jesus said, truly, this is a son of Abraham. He had come to faith as Abraham did. In the Lord, that salvation had come to his home. At the end of that passage there, our Lord said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost he came to seek sinners because sinners were not seeking him and he came to save them from the wrath of almighty god after feeding 5000 men plus women and children in john 6:35 our lord said i am the bread of life he that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst our Lord was not establishing a feeding program or a food stamps or anything like that in John 6, though the people bought under- that. He was giving an illustration how men could not live physically without bread, and so he gave them physical nourishment, but it pointed to him. In the same way we cannot live physically without bread or without food, we cannot live spiritually without Jesus Christ, who's come to save sinners. The message of salvation is the theme of all scripture. God promised it as early as to Adam and Eve there in the garden after they had sinned. And throughout the Bible, we see God Almighty, holy, just, and good, and gracious unto sinners, calling men unto himself. Through Isaiah, the Lord pleaded in Isaiah forty-five twenty-two: Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth." For I am God, and there is none else. Among the last words of Scripture is a final invitation given to sinful mankind. In Revelation 22, 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. At the very end of the chapter, God invites sinners unto himself. And the passage of this section that we're looking at this morning, we call it the great invitation, for so it is. An invitation given by Christ unto sinners. The passage begins in verse 25 with these words, at that time. And the preceding verses, verses 20 through 24, our Lord rebuked the cities of Chorosan and Bethsaida and Capernaum, which was his hometown, which had seen the most miracles, and yet they remained unrepentant in unbelief. It was the city of Capernaum, which was his home base, his home headquarters during his earthly ministry, that had been exposed to much of the teaching and the miracles of Jesus Christ. So they had great, uh, they they were greatly blessed. But with those blessings that they had came great responsibility. Our Lord healed the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8 there in Capernaum. It was there in Capernaum that a man that was demon-possessed was delivered by the word of Christ. It was there in Matthew chapter 9 that they brought a paralytic, a paralyzed man unto Jesus Christ. And our Lord in front of them all said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And of course the people began to say, the religious leaders, Who can forgive sins but God only? And our Lord, of course, reads people's minds that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy mat, and walk home. And the man who had been paralyzed instantly was strengthened. And they seen this miracle that illustrated the power of Jesus Christ to save sinners. Yet, after all of those miracles, and after hearing the preaching of the Son of God, They remained unrepentant. They remained without saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So our Lord uttered a woe, a condemnation unto them. And said, how though they were blessed, it will be more tolerable for the city of of, of Tyre and Zidon on the day of judgment than for them. Tyre and Zidon were coastal cities that were very wicked and immoral and greedy and pagan. Yet our Lord said of the cities of Chorosan and Bethsaida, on the day of judgment, these good people, these kind people, these conservative citizens, who remained unrepentant without faith in Christ, it will be worse for them than the wicked pagans on the day of judgment. And thou Capernaum, the hometown of Christ, which are exalted unto heaven, with blessings, and that you've seen God in human flesh among you. You've heard him preach. You have seen his miracles, yet you remain unrepentant. You are exalted to heaven with blessing, yet you will be brought down to hell. For to whom much is given, much is required. And the more you are exposed to God's truth, the more you know of Jesus Christ and yet remain unconverted, the worse it will be for you on the day of judgment. And it was in the background of these rejecting cities, of our Lord rebuking them for their unrepentedness, it was in that background of rejection that we see the Lord begin to pray. He doesn't pray with bitterness or vindictiveness, rather he lifts up his voice and thanks to God, because nothing can frustrate the sovereign purposes of the Father. Jesus' response to his rejection was to praise his Father. In verse 25, At that time, after rebuking these cities, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. It is interesting when you, here's our Lord, I thank thee, a very strong term for worship. He refers to his father, interesting, he never speaks to his disciples and says the father, he is our father. It is my father. A very unique relationship Christ has with the father. In fact, the Jews of the first century, unlike us here in the year 2011, understood that that was a claim to deity. That he claimed to have the same nature as the father. In fact, in John 5.18, they were angered that he blasphemed because he called God his Father, making himself equal to God. And here he is, the second person of the Trinity, addressing the Father with thanksgiving. And when he does, he calls the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is a Jewish title for God that stresses the lordship and the sovereignty of God over all things. We see this term used, for example, when Melchizedek, the king priest, met Abraham in Genesis 14 after the battle when he recovered his nephew Lot. The word of God says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. May Abram, that is Abraham, be blessed. May God Almighty, the sovereign of the universe, may he blessed Abraham. We see this even in Acts seventeen twenty four, where Paul says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth. This is a title that stresses the awesome sovereignty of God. And this is the title our Lord is using in our text this morning. Salvation is a provision of the Lord of heaven and earth, and it is not a result of man's wisdom. Of man's plans, or man's purposes, or man's power. And for that truth, that salvation is of the Lord. Jesus praises the Father. He does not question the Father, he praises the Father. We weep, and well we should, for those that refuse to be saved, just as our Lord wept over Jerusalem. But also, like Jesus, we should praise our Heavenly Father, that all things are under his divine control and sovereignty. Men's rejection of Christ proves their failure, not God's failure. Our responsibility is to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility to ultimately save sinners. 1 Corinthians 3.6, the Apostle Paul says, I have planted... Apollos watered, that is, he went there, planted the church, preached the gospel, saw people saved. Apollos followed up and began to pastor them. But God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It is not the preacher who saves the sinner, but it is the preacher's God that saves sinners. Because of Jesus, Jesus had an unyielding trust in the Father's perfect will. He could rest in that will and give praise to the Father no matter how people responded. It is in that context, the context of praising the Father for his sovereignty, that our Lord invites sinners to himself to be saved. So what do we learn from the text this morning? We learn if you are going to come to Jesus for salvation, number one, you must come in humility and dependence. You must come in humility and dependence. Verse 25. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. For what did Jesus praise the Father? He praised God for hiding the significance of his words and miracles from the wise and prudent. He praises the Father for concealing it from the wise and prudent, yet revealing these truths unto babes. The wise and prudent. Prudent, another word for intelligent. The wise and prudent sarcastically refers to those who are intelligent in their own eyes. They are wise in a very conceited way. They rely on their, own human, on their own human wisdom. Oh, this doesn't make sense to me. I don't think I'll accept that message. I don't think it's very reasonable. The Lord does not exclude smart people from his kingdom. Or rather, those who trust in their smartness. Paul was a brilliant man, very well read man. He knew much of the Old Testament by memory. He even knew the writings of pagan poets. So we see in Acts 17 that he could quote by memory pagan writings. He was a brilliant man, educated. And he did not forsake his intelligence to become a Christian. But he stopped relying on his intelligence to discern and understand divine matters. He began to understand and to accept them as they are revealed by faith. It is not intelligence, but intellectual pride that shuts people out of God's kingdom. Intelligence is a gift of God. But... When it is perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God. Because people trust in their gift of intelligence and not in the gift giver, the Lord. God resists the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not not in all his thoughts. The religious man who relies on tradition or good works to please God, he's just as far as the atheist who refuses to believe in God. The means God uses to hide these things from such people is their own proud, darkened, unregenerate hearts. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, the word of God tells us as it is written, Eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. God has revealed divine truth in Scripture to his people. And it goes on to say, First Corinthians two fourteen. But the natural man, the unsaved man, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Me, a sinner worthy of hell, I am insulted. How dare you say that? How dare you? God will accept I am an intelligent person. I have graduated from Oxford. No amount of evidence is sufficient to convince that type of unbeliever. John spoke of such people in John 12:37. But though he Jesus had done so many miracles before them yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled when he spake, Lord who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe. Because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. That they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I shall heal them. The wise and prudent refer to the intellectually proud, the self-sufficient, the ones who believe they deserve heaven. They're so smart, they're so wise, they're so religious. It is to them that Jesus praises the Father for concealing the truth and not revealing it unto them. But the babes here does not refer to those that are ten months old and under. A baby here is, is, is those who are humble and dependent in their spiritual attitude towards Christ. You see, a baby is totally dependent upon others for their support. A nine-month-old can't go get a job and pay for his own roof over his head. He's dependent upon mommy and daddy. He is utterly helpless. You can't tell a, a six-month-old child, get up and fight for yourself, be a man. He won't do anything. He'll just just be there. He's helpless. It is the spiritual babes. Those who acknowledge their utter helplessness in themselves. To whom God has sovereignly chosen to reveal his truth. Those whom God has humbled by his grace. It is the poor in spirit that our Lord spoke about on the Sermon on the Mount. It is those who are poor, those who are spiritual beggars, who realize their utter spiritual bankruptcy, who realize there's nothing in them to commend them to God. It is they who are utterly dependent and come with that humility unto Christ that God saves. It is a contrast here between those who think they can save themselves by their own human wisdom, resources, and achievement, and those who understand that they cannot. It is a comparison between those who rely on themselves and those who rely on God. That God had revealed himself in this way was not an accident. It was his good pleasure. For so it seemed good in thy sight. Spiritual understanding is not dependent on status or race or education. It is a gift of our sovereign God. He also hides and reveals as he chooses. And it's for this awesomeness of God, the Father, that Jesus praises him for. It is the same thing with the psalmist when he says in Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, You must come in humble dependence like a little child, like a babe. For God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Salvation, do you notice when Jesus deals with sinners? He didn't offer grace to the rich young ruler who thought he deserved heaven. What did Jesus do? Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why callest thou me good? There is one good, that is God. Keep the commandments. Here a proud man comes to be saved and our Lord gives him law. Why? Because grace is offered to the humble, not to the proud. It is until you tremble before Mount Sinai as a lawbreaker worthy of the very fires of hell. It is then and only then that you're ready to flee unto Mount Calvary where Christ has died for sinners. These are the humble, the dependent. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, you must come in humility and dependence upon Christ and him alone. Jesus Christ plus nothing. It is not Christ plus, look at my heritage. Yes, your heritage is from Adam, a fallen race. Yes, that that is your heritage. If you're going to come to Christ for salvation, number two, Number two, the Lord must reveal himself to you. Verse 27. The Lord must reveal himself to you. Verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save that is except the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The words of Christ are basically a commentary on verse 25. Expanding the truth that God has chosen to reveal his truth unto babes, the helpless, the dependent. And has chosen to hide his truth from the prideful, the self-reliant. A genuine invitation to salvation must consider God's revelation. Because if God doesn't reveal his truth, we won't be able to understand it. We won't even seek it. The way of salvation is disclosed only through the sovereign revelation of God. Jesus has what the sinner needs. This is why he has all things. All that we need is in Christ. From the preceding chapters, it's become clear that our Lord has received full authority to save sinners. We see that in Matthew. see that in Matthew 4, how he has authority over the devil himself. The very devil himself must obey the word of Christ and his authority. The maniacs of Gadara in Matthew 8. We see our Lord has sovereignty over the whole demon world. In Matthew 9, we see the woman with the issue of blood. And the paralyzed, the paralytic in Matthew 9. Our Lord has power over all diseases. In Matthew 8, you see that Jesus has power over nature. The very winds and the waves obey him. In Matthew 9, we see he had power over life and death. His own disciples and all people, Matthew 10, he has authority, sovereignty over all people. He has the power to save them. He has the power to judge them, as you see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Indeed, part of the Great Commission is that Jesus has all authority... All authority has been given unto me, our Lord said in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. Jesus has this authority and this power because he is God. And he says, no man knoweth the Son but the Father. No one truly comprehends and knows the Father intimately but the Son. No one knows the Son intimately but the Father. And it is only when the Son reveals himself can men know by divine revelation who he is. What Jesus teaches here about God's revelation of himself is that one simple and yet utterly profound. It is to the person who sets aside all human knowledge and wisdom and becomes unlearned like a helpless infant. God has chosen to sovereignly reveal himself. Martin Luther commenting on these verses stated... Here the bottom falls out of all merit, all human powers, and the abilities of reason or of the free will men dream of. And it all counts nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. Not only the, not only the, even the understanding that we're sinners, that Christ is the answer, God must reveal that to you. We are dependent upon God. If you're going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, the Lord must reveal himself. He must show you both the depravity of your own heart and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. Number three. If you're going to come to Jesus for salvation, number three, you must come in repentant faith. You must come in repentant faith. Verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just as man's part in salvation is to come humbly, he's also to come in faith. He's to come. Jesus says, come unto me. To come to him is to believe on him. As Paul, the apostle, and Silas told the repentant jailer in Philippi. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul could have said, all right, you need to be baptized, you need to be confirmed, you need to do this, you need to... He could have gave him a whole list. But he looked at the repentant jailer shaking, trembling over the awesomeness of the earthquake, displaying God's power. He was repentant of his sin. and In Acts 16, he asked Paul, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives him the divine imperative, the divine divine command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He pointed him to Christ and him crucified. To come unto him is to receive him, to drink, to look, to confess, to hear, to enter the door of salvation through faith in Christ. Salvation from our sin and from its power and from its penalty in hell it is not through a creed, it is not through a church, it is not through a ritual, through a pastor, through a priest, or any such human means. Jesus said, not come unto my church to be saved. He said, come unto me. Come unto me. The, the invitation was given to sinners. The object of faith is not a church, it is not clergymen, it is not a creed, but it is a living Christ. Salvation is in Christ. He gave this invitation, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The word labor carries the idea of working to the point where you're utterly exhausted. It refers figuratively to the tough, grueling toil in seeking to please God. Those who are under the burdens of all the man-made traditions that were handed down as the word of God in the first century those who were trying to keep hundreds of laws in order to make themselves acceptable before God, they were crushed with the fact that they were inadequate. They could not save themselves. They were being crushed by their sins and by these man-made traditions. Jesus says, come unto me. I will give you rest. Notice, he says, I will give you Rest. Notice that rest here is a gift. It is unmerited. It is unearned. I will give you, not, not I'm going to reward you. If you do such and such and you're a good moral person, I'm going to reward you and say, boy, you deserve heaven. No, it is a gift of God's free grace to sinners. This is the rest of salvation that comes from realizing that Christ finished the work of our salvation on Calvary's cross. It is a realization of John 19.30 when our Lord said, it is finished, to tell us die. It is paid in full. Did not just make salvation theoretical, but actual in the lives of his people, he had paid the price for sinners. Come and you'll receive rest. Your conscience will be clean of your sin. You'll be in a right relationship with God. Why? Because you've come and you've gone through a ritual note because you've come to Christ. Come unto me, our Lord says, unto sinners. So here it is. If we're going to come to Jesus Christ for salvation, you must come in repentant faith. That is, here you are loving your sin, living for yourself. And the call of God comes out and you turn from sin and turn unto Jesus Christ by faith. Fourthly, if you're going to come to Jesus for salvation, number four, you must come to him in submission as Lord. Look at verses 29 and 30. Well, will hurry up. I know you have to be out of here by two. <clears throat> Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls. for My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord's invitation includes a call to submission, symbolized by a yoke. No, not the egg yoke that was in your eggs this morning, but a yoke, a uh, a wooden instrument, a, a farming instrument, when you would get two animals, you would yoke them together. They would put these instruments around their necks, connecting them together. It was an instrument that was used for animals at work. It wasn't the idea of, I'm going to wear this yoke because it looks good on the animal. You know how people decorate their dogs? In our city, people love to decorate their chihuahuas. People either have a chihuahua or a pet bull. One of the two. One of the extremes. And people put these little things around their necks to decorate them. The yoke is not a decoration. It, a yoke, you would yoke two animals because they were going to work together. They were a, in submission to the farmer who would use them to work them. Our Lord is saying, come unto me. Be yoked to me. Come and do a submissive relationship to me as your Lord, as your God. A yoke symbolizes obedience, and Christian obedience includes learning from Christ. The power of salvation is entirely of grace and nothing of works. An unbeliever has neither the understanding nor the ability to save himself. Although good works do not produce salvation, when salvation does come by God's free grace, there is fruit that results in salvation, the fruit of good works. Ephesians 2, 8 reminds us, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So here it is, our Lord calls sinners, come to me. It is not coming, I want to come to Christ And I want to believe in his work, but not in his person. It doesn't work that way. You cannot use him as a savior and reject him as your Lord. For we come and we are saved, not by simply believing in a work Jesus did, but in the person of Christ, and he is Lord. And he is God. And we must come to him as he is in the scripture. He is a king to be bowed to. And we must come and be yoked to him. Our Lord says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. In contrast to the Pharisees who were harsh and proud, the true teacher is meek and lowly. Those who take his yoke and will learn to take the lowest place of service as our master did. As we submit to him in saving faith, we find rest unto our souls. Will you come to him? Will you submit to him? Will you come with no strings attached? When I go to the North Kern State Prison in our city to preach there on a monthly basis, there'll be times when men will say, You've preached, and boy, I understand this about my sin, about breaking God's law, but I understand breaking the law real good. I think I might want to be saved, I think I might want be I- to become a Christian, but. <clears throat> But I have one issue. If I become a Christian, do I have to uh, change this or change that? Okay, let's strike a bargain. Well, God's not the DA. He's not the district attorney. You don't strike a bargain. Why? Because there's nothing in you that God needs. Nothing. I'll become a priest or whatever you guys are called. Well, no, no, there's no bargaining with God. You come empty-handed as a beggar. You flee to Christ. With nothing in your hand, you bring simply to his cross, you cling. You come making no bargains to Christ as Savior, for so he is. But he is Lord, he is God, and you come with the bowed knee. For the bowed knee, to King Jesus, is as much as part of salvation as the empty hand of faith is. For if you come to him, you must bow to him. Come to him in submission as Lord. Come to him in repentant faith. Come to him in humility and dependence. Will you come to him? Have you come to him? say, so, yeah, I have. Are you inviting others to come to him? For our job is not just to be pew warmers, but to be part of the great commission. It excites me that you guys have a night when you go out on visitation. You should be there. Unless you have to work, or I understand those circumstances, but you ought to be there. For God saved us to serve him and to bring him glory. Well, we go out and visit people. They may not get saved. That's not in your hands. It's not in your hands. You're like to be this, like the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You're to sow the seed of the word of God. Sow it and sow it and some will fall on good ground. Yes, some on thorny ground, some on hard ground. Yes, that's true. But sow the seed, that's what we're here for. To invite men to come unashamedly unto Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Have you come to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we pray, as we bow our heads and our hearts before thee, as we've heard your great invitation, work in the hearts of saint and sinner this morning. Do a work that only you can do by the greatness of your awesome and sovereign grace. We thank you for your truth. Apply it by thy spirit to the hearts of men during this time of invitation.